I'm Clive Tilsley, and you're listening to EPL's Live Beyond the Score. Reset. Charged down by Cafu. In towards Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Here we go! Steven Gerrard puts a grain of doubt in the back of Milan. Minds and gives hope to all the many thousands of Welcome to the first installment of this six-episode series of Beyond the Score Champions League edition brought to you by Stan Sport, the new home of the UEFA Champions League. You can watch every game exclusively on Stan Sport. I'm your host, Nicole Yamino, and I'm joined by James Sabo. We're both lead editors of Sportsbank Mobile's EPL Live app. Uh, Jimmy, are you signed mm-hmm. up to Stan Sport yet? Of course I am, Nico. You know, I normally steal your subscriptions for everything, but Stan Sport is that good, mate, that I've uh, created my own account and I'm on it and I'm ready for this week. Kicks off on Wednesday, the Champions League. And, uh, you know, I'm a big Juventus man and Man United Mm. man. So I'm Mm. very excited for Champions League. And we know that Manchester United is going to win it. So I'm especially pumped this year. Have you signed up? I have. I have. Uh, We're only a couple of days out, so you've got to be prepared. Um, But what, what game? Be honest, what game are you most mm. looking forward to straight up? Oh, well, there's a few of them, but I feel that, especially with the uh, the comeback of Cristiano Ronaldo, I think Young Boys mm. and Manchester United is the one I'm looking forward to. It's <laughs> 2.45, though, uh, Australian time, so I'll be up nice and early. Or maybe yep. I'll just um, not, go to, not go to bed and just, just watch it, but that's the one I'm that's looking to forward to. That's the way to do it, Nico. What are you looking forward to, mate? Uh, being a Liverpool man, I'm I look I'm looking forward to Liverpool Milan, which is why we're here mm-hmm. actually to go beyond the score yeah. of that game in 2005. Hence the name of the podcast. In fact, we're actually going into the commentary box of that game, mm-hmm. that final uh, in Istanbul, with the help of a very special guest, Clive Tilsley, uh, who was the voice of that night in Istanbul, the voice of World Cups, Euros, FA Cups, and of course, Champions Leagues. But before we hear from the great man, let's take a little bit of a dip into that game first, Jimmy. And uh, I've got a question for you. As a neutral supporter of these two teams, but a lover of Italian and English football, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of this final? Uh, Malama robbed. I get no, no. To be fair, this was the absolute. It was the best final of all time in terms of Champions Leagues, and I think one of the best games ever. I mean, they had the story. It had everything except for maybe red cards. I think this one. And um, when you look at the Milan team that they were playing, this is the, the. It's an unbelievable underdog story. I don't think people realize how big a underdog Liverpool were coming into this this game. They hadn't made a final for 20 years. And I think the mm. last time they did was that um, that tragedy that led to 40 fans um, being killed after that scuffle. So they were obviously mm, after a bit of yeah. redemption. And, yeah. um, you know, Milan had made it two years prior 
um, and they'd won it two years prior. They'd won the City R the, the season before. So they're coming up and just huge underdogs, Liverpool. So I think mm. what I remember most about this is is the story of obviously the comeback, the 3-0 comeback at halftime. But even before yeah. the match, you thought Liverpool are huge underdogs. Then 3-0 at halftime, it almost seemed impossible. So I think if you brought this script um, to anybody and said, hey, um, let's make a movie about this to think it's just too wacky and too um, unbelievable to, to make into a movie. So I think it's just one of the all-time best games. Nico, as a Liverpool supporter, you were up that morning. What do you remember from it? Well, at the time I was only 10 years old, but I do remember plenty of it. Obviously, it was just, yeah, it was one of the craziest games of football I've ever seen. Um, hmm. And you just need to look at the Milan team. We'll, I mean, we'll dissect that in a second, but just yeah. the, the comeback. Uh, yeah, like you said, the underdog story. The whole journey for Liverpool up until the final was just crazy. It just kind of fell into their lap. But, um, yeah, looking back on it now, it was just, yeah, by far, in my opinion, uh, the best final we've ever seen. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I guess the reason being is that the stark contrast between the two sides, um, when you think of AC Milan at that time, they were the best team in the world. Uh, they had the they had legends. They were stacked with legends, not just great players, but legends. Um, yeah. And well, like Maldini, you said, if I could just say, Palomandini, one of the best defenders ever, Alessandro mm. Nesta, Pirlo was in his prime, and and Gattuso as well. And then we remember that was before the 2006 triumph. So that you know, Inzaghi yeah. was there. You know, you've got Sadov and and Crespo, um, Shevchenko. I mean, Dida in all in their prime. Just, yeah, all in their Ka- prime as well. And yeah, Kaka, Kafu. The, I mean, the, the list goes on. They they were just yeah. unreal. And then when you look at Liverpool. Um, just at the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, they were they were a good side. Um, they were well drilled, but they were no uh, Jose's Chelsea or Fergie's United or even mm. at the time Arsenal under Arsene Wenger. Uh, that was around the time they were invincible as well. That's so right. were they fifth, um, fifth or sixth in the league that year as well? Weren't they? Yeah, Liverpool finished fifth in the league behind fifth. Everton. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that just gives you a taste of what the team was like. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they had a couple of good players, obviously, Steven Gerrard, uh, Jamie Carragher, Shabby Alonso. But then, you know, the, the list drops quite off after that. Yeah. Jimmy Tra- Even Harry Traore. Peele was there, but he got, he got injured early, Harry. Yeah, in the final. That's it. He never yeah. really made mm-hmm. a massive impact, our boy mm-hmm. Harry Kill, the Aussie. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean... It, the, the story for me for Liverpool that season was just the whole uh, the whole campaign, the whole Champions League ca- campaign, dating right back to the group stages. Um, they only just scraped through. Uh, they won the first game in the group stage, two um, yeah. nil, and then from there, uh, the next four games after that, they were winless. So they go into the match day six against Olympiacos at Anfield, needing to win. And they find themselves one nil down at the break. Mm-hmm. So from at that point, at that point, you're you're thinking, all right. So Liverpool aren't a great team. Uh, they're barely going to make it out of the group stage. There's only 45 minutes left to score three goals um, to go through on goal difference. Um, who would have thought at that point that you know they would go on to not only reach the final but beat Milan? And that's at a time yep. where there's teams like Barcelona. We mentioned a few of the English teams before. But, you know, of course they turn it around. They, they score two goals and then they're still needing of a third. And who else but uh, Steven Gerrard? It, it, 
on the half volley just scores this absolute screamer, vintage mm. Gerard um, at the cop end. So like it, it was just it was meant to be. Um, and at the time, emotional, Nick, I know. Oh, you like I know. To exaggerate I know. as a Liverpool supporter, but it was it was it was a fairy tale to scrape mm. through and 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 get through. I'm sorry for interrupting yep. you. No, no, that's all right. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess in the four previous games before that, I think they'd only scored one goal and it was an own goal. So at halftime, they mm. needed three to go through and, you know, they get it, obviously. Um, and then in the in the knockout stages, they beat Juventus, they beat your boys. They probably didn't deserve to go through. Then no. Chelsea Chelsea in the semi-final. Um, I'm not sure if you you recall this, but the ghost goal, uh, Luis Garcia, the ball doesn't cross the line uh, mm-hmm. in the second leg. It gets counted as yeah. a goal. Um, and Liverpool go through to the final against Milan. And, yeah. you know, we know what happens there. But it was just we an do. unbelievable, unbelievable uh, run of games for them. Yeah, that's right. It was, a, it was a big contrast to Milan, I guess, because they kind of breezed through their group and, and they had a, a group of death as well. So it says a lot about the quality of their squad. When you've got Barcelona, Shakhtar, Celtic, they go through mm. with four wins, one draw, only one loss. They, they concede yeah. only three goals in I mean, six games. I mean, that's almost a group of death. It's almost it, a group of death. It is a group of death. <laughs> it Barcelona is, and they breeze through it. Yeah. They breeze through it, to be honest, against is Barcelona. So you come in as strong favourites. And I always remember... At the start of the game, it was funny when you came into the final against um, against Liverpool. A lot of people, I think it was an English writer who wrote, even before the kickoff, the Italians are one nil up, and it's because they come, they arrive in Turkey, they're dressed with designer suits, they look perfect, <laughs> the last year's champions look crisp and, and pristine, and then Liverpool arrive in their little shiny track suits, and it was just like, yeah. this is David versus Goliath. This is <laughs> they've got no hope, Liverpool, and then. We know the start of the game. Nico, you tell us what happened first. Yeah, I mean, the start of the game, <laughs> Milan, uh, like heading into the game firstly, before we get into mm. the game, uh, AC Milan, I, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, Milan, I think mentally they would have had uh, one hand on the trophy, it has to be mm-hmm. said. Going up against Liverpool, uh, obviously Chelsea get knocked out in the semi final. I think Milan would have been very happy with that, not having to face Jose Mourinho. Um, but yeah, they, they start the game and straight off the bat, I think it was uh, Maldini gets the first mm. goal, the captain, the skipper's goal. It's, it's a dream start for Milan. Yeah. And then perfect set piece as well from Pirlo to, to curl that into Maldini, 36 years of age, perfectly mm. taps it through. It's one nil with, with less than two minutes on the clock. And it was like, Oh, here we go. This, yeah. this will just play to plan. AC Milan, we're going to go through. Exactly right. And it wasn't much longer before, you know, the, the lead was doubled and, and they were, they were mm-hmm. bossing Liverpool at the time. Like they were just, yep. uh, they were a few levels ahead of them. Yeah. So this, this insane bit of play where I think it was, yeah, it was Kaka um, just plays this perfect through ball to Crespo and he mm-hmm. just chips the goalkeeper, chips Dudek, who's in his own right, a very good goalkeeper. Yeah. And, you know, it goes in, obviously, 2-0. And at that point, you're just like, wow, like Milan just absolutely bossing it. Yeah, um, I think after that second goal as well, I think they were on the commentary, they said that you need a minor miracle now. Even at 2-0, they were saying that it looked all over. And like you said, the midfield was pretty open. I think the way they were bossing it, like you said, and it was open spaces throughout midfield and a perfect mm. through ball to Crespo. And then he gets he 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 gets his second goal as well in the forty fourth minute. Another another ball to Crespo when he scores, and I think Clive Tilsey, who you're interviewing next, said uh, that could be the end of the Champions League.
League final at 3 0. And it, it bloody looked like it as well. Mm. 3 0 at half time. It, it's just, it's game over. It's unthinkable. Mm. And I think, Nico, as the players were walking out of the tunnel, I think there was a lot of, that was a, it was a big Liverpool crowd as well. I think there was a lot of Liverpool fans in. Um, yeah, they in made Istanbul. the long journey across the Turkey. Yeah. And they were, they were chanting as well, I believe, at the time, you'll never walk alone. But it was more of a dejected, like, oh, we're still with you. We know you've lost the game, but we're still there with you. <laughs> Interesting to hear Stephen Gerrard say he, he really felt that as he walked off the pitch that he was listening to this crowd and going, God, we just need to do something for them. And, yeah, um, yeah an unbelievable turn of events in the second half. Well, that's it. I think I think the tactics changed in this uh, second half. There was a lot of talk pre-game and uh, after at halftime as well that Liverpool just got their tactics completely wrong. They were just ripped mm. apart in midfield, and obviously Harry Kiel got injured early on in the game as well. So yeah. he goes off. Uh, Vladimir Smitsa comes on, and at the time he he was he was on the verge of leaving the club, and he wasn't yeah. prepared to come on either. C- comes on. And uh, Liverpool are forced to, you know, change their formation a bit. So, you know, nine minutes in, I think Dudek uh, makes this incredible save that um, that denies Milan going 4-0 up. And then mm-hmm. nine minutes later, uh, who else? Steven Gerrard pops up for the header and that's yeah. 3-1. And then, yeah, Clive Tilsley's famous quote, hello, he- hello, here we go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a line that, mate, Liverpool uh, supporters, including myself, I think it was my ringtone at one point. We just keep replaying it over and over again. And then that boy, <laughs> Smita, two minutes later, comes up with yeah, the Outside the sh- box. Unreal. Just unreal. Yeah. Um, and, and four minutes after that, so in the space of six minutes, Shabiel, mm. uh, Gerard goes down in the box. And it was a penalty. It was. It's fair yep. to say. And then after all, like the craziness, yeah, grabbed him. It was just. It was a little bit of a grab from Gattuso, and 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 then there you go, straight away. That it was the the um the penalty that was saved initially by Dita, but the, but then the the uh, Alonso tapped in. That's um, it. Follow up. I also, sorry, Nico, I was I was speaking to a journalist a while back who was actually at the game and I asked him. I said, you know, was it hard to you know report on this game because there was so many goals? And she mm. said, no, it wasn't that hard because all the Goals came at like one time. Even in the first half, they came close together. And then the second half, in a matter of a few minutes, it was already 3-3. So it was just that incredible mm. how the wave of goals came so close together in, yeah. in, in, in an unbelievable match. And like after all the craziness that happened in the build-up to uh, the final uh, in Liverpool's journey, like we spoke about the group stages and the knockouts and whatnot, the ghost goal, uh, for for the penalty to be saved and then rebound straight back to Alonso. You just knew things were just going Liverpool's yeah. way. And I, and I mean, if you're playing FIFA, that's about the time you just want to throw the remote <laughs> at the TV. Um, You've done that many times, Nick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A few, 100%. a few for sure. A few special moments as well. I think even when AC Milan had a few extra chances and then Traore yeah. off the line, um, you know, Carragher's putting his body on the line and it was just, everything was going Liverpool's favor and, mm. and, and Milan couldn't, couldn't score. And I want to talk, this, this was the biggest moment for me as, as a goalkeeper. I love watching this, but in extra time, Dudek's double save, I think was mm. the greatest of all time. And obviously mm. the, the header from Shevchenko and then Shevchenko goes to follow it up as well. And I think it was his right right hand saves it. It was just an unbelievable double save. And he was always going to be the hero, Dudek, I think. And so mm-hmm. when the penalty shootout came, once you've made a big save like that, you probably got a bit of confidence. I'll ask you, you're only 10 years old, but uh, were, you, were you feeling confident going into the penalty shootout? 
I don't think you're ever confident going into a penalty shootout, especially against yeah, that Milan side. Um, mm. Yeah, you wouldn't bank on any of those plays missing like Shevchenko and uh, Kaka and Pirlo and all that sort of stuff. And, and Pirlo missed. Both Shevchenko and Pirlo missed their penalties. Yeah. I mean, the whole second half, AC Milan still bossed it, which I found just absolutely crazy how Liverpool held on. So Dudex, you know, heroics in the second half and then heroics in the... Uh, uh, in the penalty shootout, yeah, he was he was the true hero that night for Liverpool, and yeah. you know, obviously that's how they lifted number five. It was kind of um, poetic, I guess, when with Dudek saves Shevchenko's penalty to win it in the end, and I was really happy as a goalkeeper that he becomes the hero, and and to see Pirlo miss as well was just and Shevchenko mm. miss as well, like two champions. You you wouldn't maybe one of them might miss, but both of them to miss as well. Mm. I mean, they they got saved those penalties, so it wasn't really a miss, but still, I mean, Dudek's moment. Um, and what a what a man, what a moment, what a game. Mm. It's the greatest of all time, even though, you know, I'm not a big fan of Liverpool, mainly because of you, Nico. <laughs> I still look back on this game very fondly. And uh, I'm not a huge fan. Of, I like Italian football, but as a Juventus fan, it was, it was pretty nice to see Milan uh, go down in a heartbreaking fashion like that. Well, it was only two years later when they beat Liverpool in the final uh, in 2007 to get their revenge. Yep. But anyway... You've, you've heard our side of the story, but now it's time to get a little bit of insight from the man that was there, Clive Tilsley, best in the business in the commentary box. So let's get straight into it. And now to hear about it all from one of the most eminent voices in football, Clive Tilsley. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on Beyond the Score, Clive. Thank you. (laughs) Um, As you know, Clive, Champions League is back. Liverpool and AC Milan meet again on Wednesday, match day one. So we're taking a trip down memory lane and revisiting that famous night in Istanbul, which of course you were there for and you famously called. So I guess my first question to you is, where does that game rank for you amongst the long list of Champions League finals you've commentated on? Well, the um, the Champions League final in that era uh, was broadcast on terrestrial television in the UK. Um, so the audiences were massive. I mean, there were 20 million plus. We're a, a nation of 60-odd million people. So um, nearly everybody was watching them. I think it was an era... Uh, post the Heisel Stadium uh, disaster, where um, English football was refining the European Cup, the Champions League. Obviously, there'd been a, a phase in the late 70s and 80s when there was an English team in the final every year and winning the final every year. And then for one reason or another, um, there was a long period where it was very uncommon to find um, English teams making progress in the uh, competition. So um, we were kind of falling in love with the Champions League again, I think, as a, as a football nation. I think football had become more tribal during that period. And so for every Liverpool fan who loved Istanbul, there was an Everton fan and a Manchester United fan who didn't particularly love it. And I think as a commentator, you had to be aware of that. Whereas maybe my predecessors could... A champion, a, 
a Nottingham Forest victory or an Aston Villa victory back in the 80s, almost as a victory for England, almost like a national team victory. I don't think that was the case with Manchester United in 1999 or with Liverpool in, in 2005. But nonetheless, um, when the theatre uh, was of the quality that it was with that United victory, with this Liverpool victory, it was gripping sporting uh, entertainment and and the country sat down to watch it. So they were very, very special occasions and um, I was very privileged to play a small part in them. So take us into the commentary box that night. What was the anticipation like heading into the game, the general expectation, your expectation? Then how much did it change by half time? And then at what point did you realise something special could be unfolding? It was a very strange venue a very unpopular venue, actually, with local fans. We always refer to the final being in Istanbul. It was nowhere near Istanbul. It was miles outside of the city. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't visit the city on that particular trip. We stayed in a hotel quite close to the stadium. I remember we had uh, Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman on our team. Uh, Andy Townsend was my uh, co-commentator. And so we spent the night in this kind of suburban hotel and just traveled to and from this rather sparse bare stadium which liverpool fans trooped out to you know 20 25000 uh, of them came over uh, for the final that year mm. liverpool's route to the final had been almost melodramatic mm. um they were in deep trouble in the group phase famously needed three goals in the second half against Olympiacos at Anfield. Even more famously, Steven Gerrard scored the third of those goals um, spectacularly at the at the cop end to, to seal their place Absolutely. in the knockout phase. A lot of the Liverpool fans can't even remember who scored the other two goals. They're a bit of a quiz <laughs> question. I'll leave that one with you. You can, <laughs> you can, you can throw that around between yourselves. Um, and then in the knockout phase, um, you know, the victory over Juventus was almost unexpected. The victory over Chelsea was hugely controversial. Um, and so Liverpool arrived at the final almost despite the, uh, themselves. They didn't even qualify for the Champions League that season through their position in the Premier League. They were very much a team in in transition. Mm. And of course, by half time, they were 3-0 going on 33-0 down. Um, Harry Kuehl, who was a controversial co- uh, selection, had, had limped off. Um, his substitute... Vladimir Smitsa wasn't even ready to come on, um, was still putting his boots on. And that almost kind of, that that moment uh, almost encapsulated the well, the almost amateur hour feel of Liverpool, the, the sense that maybe Benitez had selected the wrong team and they were being totally outplayed. And then just to cap it all, the third Milan goal just came from another planet. It was absolutely heavenly Kaka's turn and pass and then... Uh, Crespo's training ground finish and mm. it just sort of sealed the deal you know Liverpool were trooping off 3-0 down but being hopelessly outplayed and they just didn't look ready to to be on that Champions League final stage that night and if I'm very honest I spent part of the half time looking up Liverpool record defeats and Champions League final record wins. <laughs> well, there you go. That, that was going to be my next question. What what were you preparing for at halftime and into the second half? I mean, uh, yeah, as you said, 3-0 down, but it almost felt like it was 13-0 down the way that AC Milan were just tearing Liverpool apart. So, I mean, this, the second half starts nine minutes into it. Gerard uh, scores. 
And then your famous commentary line, um, Liverpool supporters just replay that over and over these days. Did you actually mean what you said in that moment about Gerard's goal? <laughs> Not at all. Let me take you. Let me take you back a few minutes. Um, a lot has been said and written um, about the halftime period in Istanbul that night. And out in the stadium, all that Andy Townsend and I were aware of were the Liverpool fans famously singing You'll Never Walk Alone, this wonderful sort of defiant um, rendition of, of the club's anthem, which was very, very moving. All the scarves came up. Mm. And um, it, it was... Um, I, I, I don't know how much of that truly filtered down to um, the, the dressing rooms. But in the dressing rooms, it was chaotic. And uh, we know this from some, some first-hand accounts um, captured in an excellent book by Guillaume Balagay, uh, in which Rafa Benitez himself was actually quite honest um, about the fact that uh, he gave two team talks with a, with a team board, one of which had 10 counters on it and one of which had 12 counters on it. Um, Steve Finnan was eventually substituted, but originally Jimmy Traore was going to be substituted. Finnan was then um, perceived not to be fit enough to continue, was very angry. Um, Didi Harman, who was coming on, went out to warm up, apparently unaware as to exactly what his orders were. And so if if there is a version um, that depicts uh, Benitez delivering some Churchillian address and the strains of you'll never walk alone echoing around the dress room and inspiring these players uh, to refine themselves. It's fiction. Uh, that's, that isn't how it was. And, uh, and Liverpool went out really in as much disarray as they'd come into the dressing room in, in many respects, which makes what happened in those seven minutes all the more remarkable. Um, Jertsy Dudek made some incredible stops that night. Probably the best save he made was before the first goal. Um, uh, it was a drive from Shevchenko and he made a wonderful stop down to his left. So it could have been four. Um, the, there was no perce- perceivable change in the flow of the game at that stage until um, the ball was... Jan uh, uh, Arnarisa um, played a high-floated cross and Steven Gerrard headed a wonderful goal. I mean, it, it wasn't noted for his headers, but it, it was a really marvellous header, guided and looping way beyond Dida, who didn't cover himself in glory in the in the following minutes, but could have done nothing about that goal. Mm. And yeah, I heard myself say, hello, hello, here we go. And um, it was uh, a, a, a straw being grabbed at, really. It was almost yes. a piece of melodrama rather than drama. It was trying to keep this massive viewership from not going anywhere. Um, But I think there's also perhaps echoes of this element of fate, which had encapsulated the entire Liverpool run to the final, this sense that, 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 you know, despite this fact that this wasn't the greatest Liverpool team ever to play in a Champions League game, somehow they were finding a way through the competition. And... um, you know what happened in the in the following minutes was extraordinary. I, I think Smitsa did very well as a substitute mm. uh, that night. He was one of Liverpool's better performers. It was one of the most amazing football performances because this is going to sound very very harsh. There's half a dozen Liverpool players who barely deserved their winners' medal, and then probably another half a dozen who deserved two. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, Steven Gerrard played in three different positions that night. 
And he never played better for Liverpool. And that is saying something. I mean, he really, really deserved to lift the trophy that night. Jamie Carragher threw himself in the way of everything. It was absolutely inspirational. But there were some quietly, there's some other very good performances. And Smitson was amongst them. He came on and, and actually did very well in the game. But his shot should have been saved. I mean, um, Dida should have saved it. And then, of course, the penalty, which Stephen won, and I think he did win it. I mean, it's difficult sometimes to have very much sympathy for a player like Gennaro Gattuso because he spent his career making himself unpopular and making challenges. Um, but he, he he really had a bit of a grab at Stephen who went to ground. Um, yeah. The penalty was given. And, of course, the penalty was missed. He wasn't even scored. Exactly. Um, you know, Didar managed to, to get to it and then... Um, Chabi Alonso, who was outstanding himself on the night, smuggled it in. And once more, if if you have a picture in your mind that that would this extraordinary um, run of events, you know, I said something about Mission Impossible is accomplished. Uh, that Liverpool then went on and played gloriously well. They really didn't. The mm. pattern of the game didn't change very much. Milan remained on top for the the rest of the game and indeed into extra time. Dudek made a save, which he'll never, ever be able to explain. The second of the double save from Shevchenko. Liverpool, who'd had one goal line clearance in the first half, had another one when Jimmy Traore, of all people, um, you know, spared them with a, with a last-ditch clearance on the line. It would be wrong to say they stumbled into penalties, but they were pretty much playing for penalties from, you know, from quite deep into the second half. It was their best option. I can look into this camera and say, quite honestly, I believe Liverpool played better against Milan two years later and lost uh, mm. when, when they had no luck at all. Um, uh, and I believe that the 2017 would probably have beaten the 2005 team. I think it was a better Liverpool team. But that doesn't matter. Um, the trophy was lifted. And of course... Because it was the fifth Liverpool um, European Cup, um, as I said, as Stephen Gerrard lifted it, this time it's for keeps. They kept it. A lot is spoken about Stephen Gerrard's legacy, and it's often compared to the likes of Lampard, Paul Scholes. Um, and Gerrard's side of the debate is often reliant on his success in that Champions League that year. So uh, would you think that's fair to say that his legacy wouldn't be as outstanding without 2005? I, I was around the Liverpool team of the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, mm. I worked in local radio uh, on Merseyside at that time. I spent a lot of time with those guys. They were the same age as me. Um, it was an era when you could have a, a beer with the guys after the match, and we did, a few. <laughs> um, and, I mean, if you're talking about great, great's an overused word in football, but there were probably five great players in, five or six great players in in that squad. You know, if you're piecing together an all-time Liverpool team, then Kenny Dalglish is in it, Ian Rush is in it, Graham Souness is in it, Alan Hansen is probably in it, Ray Clements is probably in it, even with the, you know, the contributions that we've seen from the likes of Alisson and, and Salah and, and so on in, in, in the modern era. I think Steven Gerrard is a great Liverpool player for all kinds of reasons, but the biggest single reason was that he didn't have Rush in his team. He didn't have Sunas in his team. He didn't have Dalglish in his team. If we look, these are my uh, my prep notes from, from that final. And, yep. um, you know, with the greatest respect, you can actually, uh, if, if you can see this, if you're watching this, 
we actually market these now. And Liverpool fans love this as a kind of memento. And if you look at the names on this side, if you look at uh, Cafu, Nesta, Maldini, Pirlo, Seidel, Kaka, Shevchenko, Crespo. Unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about greats of the game. Yeah. And then if we're talking about greats of the game, Dudek, Finnan, Trory, <laughs> bless yeah. them, Barros, and then some of the substitutes that came on. You know, that was the, that was the nature of the team that Steven Gerrard led mm. that night, a team that didn't finish in the top four in mm. the Premier League. Yeah, exactly. Steven Gerrard was playing Milan on his own. Well, well maybe him and Cara and perhaps a bit from Xavi mm. at times during that night. And yeah, that's kind of defining. But Steven Gerrard played with that commitment for Liverpool Football Club every single time he crossed the white line. And you are mentioning those names from AC Milan. And would, would that have to be the greatest team you've ever seen while you've been commentating? I mean, I don't like ranking football uh, or or anything in life really because I think everything great that happens in life belongs in its moment mm. um, and I, it's very very difficult to compare what happened in the 1970s with what's happening today in any sense in music in in movies in in, in any you know in any kind of performing art uh, the world is different it's been very very different in the last two years in particular so I don't like uh, to, to to rank performances, but if I if you really push me against the wall and threaten me, <laughs> I would say the finest Champions League performance I've ever seen uh, was by Barcelona at Wembley against Manchester United, and I think probably that's the finest club team that I've ever seen. The the the, the Guardiola Barcelona team at its peak. And I want to speak about your role as the commentator as well on the night. I mean, I believe you've got the hardest job in football, trying to capture moments in a game. And we spoke about that Gerard one a moment ago. Obviously, these moments could pop up at any time and they're replayed over the years nonstop. What goes into your preparation or does a lot of it just come naturally in the moment? Well, I, th- I think that the trick, um, the cheat of the job really is to prepare so fully that it sounds like it may becomes naturally Anybody can do football research uh, and you say it's a difficult job. It's the best job because I don't get kicked. I don't have to run very far. And yet I'm still part of the uh, major occasions. Um, If I keep my head down, I I don't even get stopped in the street. You know, people just kind of know the voice rather than the face. Got a face for radio anyway. Um, But I owe it to the job and indeed to the audience, which, as I say, in the Champions League final back in the day was 20 million. Um, to to be better briefed on that particular football match than anybody watching or listening. That is my job. Mm. Uh, but anybody can do that, particularly today. I mean, the research is freely available online. You've just got to spend the hours doing it. If there is a skill in the job, it's how you use that information yeah. and, um, and when you use it um, so that you're not boring people with information that you spend hours over. But um, I, I think that, Without being too bitchy, some of my brethren should have a little crawler going across the bottom of the screen, which says, I've bloody well done this research, so you're bloody well going to hear it. That That's no good. That's sending people to sleep. Um, <laughs> the, the editorial, the journalism, if you like, in good broadcasting, good communication is uh, having the information at your fingertips and then using it properly to amplify, to, to, uh, to, to you, you know, to, to give people uh, background which helps their understanding and enjoyment of the occasion. And um, uh, the, the, the words which are remembered, um, are, they obviously come off the top of the head because however much research you do for a game, you can't prepare for 
Liverpool from being out of it, scoring three times in seven minutes, any more than you could prepare for Manchester United being out of it, scoring twice after you know the ninety minute mark has passed. They are, you know, they are the the absolute gems of you know football um, memory. Um, I, I you know everything that we enjoy about live sport is anticipation that we may just see something special again. Um, just in the last uh, 24 hours um, here in the UK, uh, a young tennis player who was unknown uh, to most British sports fans probably six months ago, just mm. didn't know the name Emma Raducanu, has absolutely entranced the nation. And that kind of sporting theatre uh, comes with a power which any political party, any religion would love to be able to harness. It's only sport really does that to us. Mm. And um, and we remember where we were and um, you remember who we were with when, when we saw this. And, and you know, there'll be a lot of people now um, on the other side of the world where you are thinking, ah, oh, 2005, I stayed up whatever time it was on in, in Australia, wherever they were in the world, will remember, even if they weren't a Liverpool fan, We'll, we'll remember the, the people who turned the, the match off at half time. Yeah, there were people who uh, left the stadium at half time. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're all those stories yeah. are, are, are part of. You, you wouldn't write it if you came with a script to the greatest director in Australia and said, "I'm going to write this uh, this sporting drama." They would laugh you out of out of the place. You know, so that's what we, that's what we witnessed that night. Something that we couldn't possibly have anticipated. Something you couldn't prepare for, and something that me with a microphone in my hand just had to respond to. And um, yeah, I mean, it is uh, it, it is it's lovely to be a small part of people's recollections of it. But was there anything from that game actually that stood out to you that may have flown under the radar? It could have been like a moment in the match or in the build up. Uh, that added to the theatre. I can't kick a football from from <laughs> here to the end of the room. You know, I I couldn't score past Loris Carrios. You know, I'm, I'm really <laughs> that bad. Um, I so I tend to reserve my comments on the actual performance of players. Mm. Um, you you might offer an opinion and and then put it by the guy that you're sitting next to. In this case, it was Andy Townsend, who you know, Captain <laughs> Ireland at a World Cup. Um, for a little bit of confirmation, but I'm very kind of wary about being too opinionated as somebody who's never really played the game, never, uh, you know, never coached a, a team at, at any kind of level. And um, when we got back to the hotel that night, we had Robbie Fowler and uh, Steve McManaman was actually on our broadcast team. Uh, but Robbie Fowler travelled out with him to see the game. So they were in the hotel with us. And um, I remember Robbie get absolutely tearing into me and, and uh, you'll love this. For, for what I'd said about Harry Kuehl's performance. <laughs> uh, he said, you were a bit harsh on Kuehl, weren't you? Uh, and I, I'm sat there sort of beaming, having felt I've done a fairly good job and enjoying that first sort of lager after his tortuous journey back to the hotel. And Robbie Fowler's getting wired into me about something that happened, it seemed like about five days earlier. I always think, you know, if I get a, a bit of a slap from somebody who's been there, seen it, done it, um, then it's uh, it's timely. I think it does just remind the rest of us. And we're all the same, you know, whether we're a football fan or a football journalist or a football broadcaster, we all think we can do it, you know, and, and of course we can't. These th <laughs> This is the greatest meritocracy in the world, professional sport. I mean, they, they only require, however, however much money you've got, you can buy a football club, but you can't buy your way into the team. Mm. The only requirement for anybody 
to be part of uh, uh, the Liverpool football team, the Australian national cricket team, the Australian national rugby uh, union team, uh, you know, play rugby league at the highest level um, in, in Australia, is that you're good enough. That's the requirement. And I've never been good enough to play any of those sports at any level. So when somebody turns around and says, this remind me how many times you've played for England, I really always hold my hand up. And that's kind of what I got from Robbie Fowler that night. So I went to bed with my tail between my legs. <laughs> well, I mean, they wouldn't be able to commentate a game as good as you. So you put that on them. Um, well, that's the other thing. Everybody thinks they can commentate too. So Exactly you know. right. Exactly and, right. And if you're a heart surgeon, nobody thinks I, I I, I could do that. But when you're a commentator or a broadcaster, everybody thinks, well, I can do that. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I did try once commentating and never again. It just wasn't for me. <laughs> but how how did, I mean, Clive, you grew up, uh, you, yeah, you were born and raised in Manchester. And uh, how did that young Clive, you know, grow into the Clive as of a legendary football commentator? Well, um, I, I do have a book out. Not for me, Clive. Try that. It's all in there. Um, but the the story is interesting in so much that I was um, I, I, I was born in the Manchester area. My father was a Manchester United fan. He took me to watch United when I was four or five years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a particularly bad spell um, in the mid-70s um, when they actually dropped down a division and were relegated. And I still follow them home and away. Uh, in my teens and uh, sort of into my university uh, college life. Um, And then I got the job of my dreams straight from college, straight from university. As soon as I graduated, I was a T-boy at a radio station. I actually started as a rock DJ, would you believe? Uh, But I was always volunteering for football and uh, always wanted to do that. And, of course, I was the same age as the players. And so when I was covering Nottingham Forest, as it was home and away, um, I I was commentating on my friends, on my mates, um, yeah, the guys I did have a beer with afterwards, and um, uh, and and actually all that um, devotion to Manchester United just kind of diluted in front of my eyes because um, now I was inside track doing the job I'd always wanted to do, and I was uh, you know I was actually travelling to games. We, I used to travel on the team coach and everything, and then watch them commentate on the games, and then I say you know go clubbing with the guys afterwards. So, um, and I, and to this day, uh, you know, Gareth Southgate was at our wedding. I go way, way back with him. So, you know, the fact that he's England manager and I'm English is one thing, mm-hmm. but I actually want England to do well because my mate's in charge. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's where my affections lie. So even though Manchester United and Liverpool are sworn enemies, by the time 2005 came along, um, I had spent more than 10 years at a local radio station on Merseyside, Liverpool Football Club, as indeed Everton Football Club, have become central to, um, you know, the way my career developed. And so uh, I, it's funny, um, I, I, well, it's not that funny, but I, I attended the funeral of a, of a Liverpool director just last week. And um, rather than wear a black tie, I wore a red tie. And it was the same red tie that I bought to wear in Istanbul, that night, I remember seeing Stephen and, and Jamie down pitch side before the game. And, uh, I, yeah, I was there smartly dressed in a grey suit, white shirt and and uh, and, and red tie. And, um, yeah, they, they are one of the football clubs that have, have been so important to, 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 to my career and so have given me some of the best moments of, of my career, and they still are. And I'll be at Anfield 
commentating for CBS Network in the USA on on Wednesday. Did you have any mentors? You, you spoke about Nottingham Forest, um, spending time with Liverpool and Everton and, and living on Merseyside. Um, did you have any mentors during those times uh, or anyone you looked up to, someone who took you under their wing? Absolutely. Um, the the guy that has, that taught me 95% of, of what I know about um, commentating sport was a boxing commentator, um, the late Reg Guttridge, uh, who was ITV's um, main boxing commentator. I didn't ask him for any help. Uh, he volunteered. He decided that he could help me. Um, it was tough love at times. Um, very often after a, a, a live game, I'd, um, I'd get a phone call the next morning uh, and there wasn't an awful lot of praise flying around. It was um, a list of the things that I could have, should have done better. Um, but he made me think about broadcasting um, in a way that has been, I think, invaluable to me. And whenever I speak to media students or to anybody who has an interest in in what we do, and it is communication, it's not football commentary, it's communication and it's mass communication. When yeah. England played Croatia in the um, World Cup semi-final, the audience was actually touching 30 million for, mm-hmm. for that particular broadcast. So you are talking to just about everybody. And there's a lot of talk about diversity um, yeah, in, in communication at the moment. And you know, diversity is, is not just ethnicity or, or gender, it's age and you know, educational background and how, how involved you are in football, how well you know football. When, when you're commentating on a game like a Champions League final, you're probably commentating to people who are watching one or four or five games a season. So, you know, you're Auntie Jane and Uncle Joe who don't re- yet. So you've got to find a way to, to be inclusive and and and, um, and and not make them feel like the kid at the back of the class who doesn't understand anything that the teacher's saying. And Reg Guttridge taught me all of that. Mm. You know, he taught me to identify the audience and commentate to that audience. He uh, he taught me to use words preciously. I mean, it's it's a strange boast if that's what it is for a football commentator because we are often accused of being. Uh, the people that do most damage to the the great English language, you know, with our cliches and our uh, melodramatic sayings. But I do value words. And we work with the same words as, you know, Stephen King or, you know, whoever your favourite songwriter is, Guy Garvey from Elbow, whoever it is, Elvis Costello, whatever. We've got the same vocabulary to work with as those guys. So, um, you know, we, we should be precious about what we say. We don't, it's not an important job. Um, you know, in a in a in a an era when the frontline workers hopefully have, have had more appreciation than ever before, we don't save anybody's life. Um, you know, we don't add to the um, the economy of the nation. But it the the involvement that people have when they're watching live sport is um, so emotional mm-hmm. that you do owe it to them and to their commitment to what they're watching to, to be good with the words and to be strong editorially and uh, and to identify them and try to communicate. Accept your position, which is a minor position. Television in particular is a visual medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're only the soundtrack. And, um, you know, there have been some great movie soundtracks, but nobody goes to see a movie to listen to the soundtrack. They go to watch the pictures and um and and so when you're watching television football the commentator's got to recognize that and be humble enough to accept that you're only playing a supporting role 
and play that role to the to the best of your ability. And that's what Reg Guttridge taught me. Mm. I think you answered my next question of what would you what advice would you give to aspiring commentators? But yeah, Be yourself. You- Bring yourself to the party. Yeah. I mean, if um if if you have favorite commentators, by all means listen to them. Mm. Learn from him or her what it is. Ask yourself what he or she brings uh, to your enjoyment of a broadcast um, and uh, analyze them. Um, I always say to media students, you know, you should be the most critical people of all in terms of, 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 um, of how you digest and consume uh, your media. Um, ask yourself how you think you could do it better, but never copy. Learn, learn. But, but don't copy. You know, I, I was a massive admirer, for instance, of Richie Benno as a, as a commentator when I was a, um, a young kid watching cricket. But I, I, there's no way that I could bring any of his style um, and, and timing and class to, to football commentary. What I could do was look at what a good journalist he was, how he used his knowledge. But actually, if I try to mimic him in any kind of way or any other commentator, then I would have just been a tribute act. Um, Mm. You've got to bring your own personality. You've got to build up a relationship with your audience. If you're going to do the job for any length of time, you know, that relationship, that trust that they have in you, that sort of grudging affection that they may have for you, even though they never meet you, is really, really important to, to, to your persona and therefore to your success. So don't be frightened to bring yourself to the party. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very good advice. Um, I guess just to cap this off, I'd love to just grab your tip for the Champions League this season, just ahead of the first kickoff. So who do you have? I haven't been the team that wins the final. <laughs> I don't get paid any more for telling you now. <laughs> if if I commentate and I am commentating on the final uh, this season for CBS, if I get it wrong at the end of the final, I lose my job. But I, I that's fine, and I kind of live with that, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm not a betting man. I don't predict. Um, I, I why would I ever predict anything when I've commentated on the 2005 Champions League final? Yeah, yeah why? Exactly right. why? Why would I offer you a prediction? Um, <laughs> I think these are strange times. Um, I, I'm not suggesting for any for a moment that any team or individual who has won a major sporting title in the last two years mm. should have an asterisk next to their name, um, because the you know the competition has in many ways it's been one of the great distractions for us during the the, the trials of the last two years watching sport on TV. Um, but now that we're witnessing um, you know football with all the theatre that that life audiences, fans, spectators, supporters bring, it, it kind of reminds you that what we have been watching for the last two years has been missing something. And it's been missing something in its energy and its electricity and its engagement. So it is uh, it, it is going to be a different Champions League. I think UEFA are giving the nod now to the possibility of away fans at, at one or two games. These are still dangerous days to be travelling too far. Mm. And there are still major uh, restrictions. But little by little, um, that that normal that, that we took for granted will return. And so, um, you know, I think, for instance, Liverpool at Anfield is a completely different prospect now for Milan than it was a year ago when the place was empty. And so um, it will have a proper atmosphere in there uh, for the game. It'll it'll have a feel of yesteryear, and that and that you know that's great. That will that will just whet the appetite for more and more. And I think it will be a, 
a really good competitive Champions League this season. And that's all from us today for this first episode of Beyond the Score, powered by Stan Sport. And don't forget, you can sign up for all your Champions League coverage with a sport trial now at stan.com.au forward slash sport. See you next time and enjoy the football.